0: Um. Okay, uh, look, I, I, I've tried to give you fair warning about sort of the, <laughs> what we're going to talk about tonight, um, and I, I simply want to introduce it by saying this. Um, we've been looking this summer at this topic, this historical discussion of the five points of Calvinism. Uh, we said that at the very beginning of the summer there was this theological discussion that went on about 300, 300 400 some odd years ago concerning these teachings that came out of this guy by the name of John Calvin. Um, At the time, they were controversial enough, or at least some of the people in the Dutch church, to disagree with them. Uh, It became so controversial that they went and had a big church council to decide upon whether or not these teachings of people who disagreed with Calvinism were right or wrong, and they established their sort of five points. And like I said, the way in which they... Uh, sort of patterned it was like this. The first point and the last point have to do with you, okay? The second, third, and fourth have to do with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? In other words, it's answering the question, uh, who in the nature of God is responsible for what in bringing about a Christian? Last week, we talked about what God the Father is responsible for and looked at the doctrine of election and predestination. Now, if this is your first time here and your whole inner being recoils at the mere sound of those words, let me invite you to go check out the podcast. You can listen to it and then you can uh, uh, have all kinds of violent reactions to it. Tonight, what we're going to look at is the question of the role of the son in um, uh, our salvation and how we picture that. Um, but, but I want to introduce it this way, and I, and I, I have uh, I, I've rolled over this for a week now, trying to figure out how to launch into this. Look, many of you know, if you've been to RUF during the school year at all, we, every single week, give the same line whenever we welcome people to RUF. You, I, hopefully, if you've been coming for more than just a year or, more, or so, you can repeat it back to me. We always say that RUF is a place for the convinced and the unconvinced to what? Evaluate the truth claims of Christianity in, an unth- in a non-threatening atmosphere. Okay? We go out of our way to try to say that RUF is not a Bible study for Christians. RUF is a Bible study for people who are interested in Christianity. Some find themselves convinced by those truth claims. Others find themselves very much on the outside of Christianity, looking in, wondering what they think about it. This place is for both of you. Okay? Um, tonight's topic, I think, has something to say, though, to both the convinced and the unconvinced, wherever you find yourself. First of all, there has been a fair amount of objection uh, in just the last 10 years or so, your sort of uh, youth, a fair amount of sort of uh, objection to one of Christianity's most central truth claims. And that is this question of what in the world Would it ever have to do with me that there was some man who lived 2,000 years ago? Let's even say that Christianity is right, that Jesus was God. What possible meaning could it have for me that this guy was brutally executed 2,000 years ago? You ever thought about that? There's a lot of people standing on the outside of Christianity who are wondering, why does Christians always insist about that? Okay, I'm here. I'm supposed to have committed some sins, but you're telling me that there's some guy 2,000 years ago that lived, was brutally executed by a government uh, unjustly, but because he was executed there, I'm supposed to be forgiven of my sins? (laughs) You follow me? In other words, unconvinced people look at that as if it's a bizarre claim. I'll actually actually at least acknowledge to some extent that that is a bizarre claim. That's strange for Christianity to, to pitch that out there. The second question, though, comes from within Christianity. In other words, there are many people from inside Christianity who are wondering, what is it that Jesus' death actually did for me? How do I relate to that death? In other words, what does it mean for me to say that I'm a Christian, I may call myself a Christian, self-identify as such, and say that something about what this guy did 2,000 years ago on the cross was really important to me, so much so that maybe I prayed a prayer, maybe I uh, acknowledged you know, about how important it was. But in, for 17 years, I feel like I've talked with you and it's amazing how rarely we've ever thought about how what Jesus did 2,000 years ago relates to us, even if we consider ourselves Christians. Does that make sense? Tonight, we are going to look at this sort of middle ground of the five points of Calvinism In order to establish the answer to this question, now bear with me for a second, then I'm just going to baldly state it. (laughs) When Jesus died on the cross, did he die to simply make your salvation possible contingent upon whether or not you believed in him? Or did he die on the cross to actually accomplish something on your behalf that you couldn't do on your behalf? That's the question. That's where we center this, okay? You missed it the first time. Let me do it one more time. Did Jesus die on the cross simply to make it possible for you to be a Christian contingent upon whether or not you believed in him, option A, or did his death on the cross actually accomplish something on your behalf that on your own you could never have pulled off, spiritually speaking? That's the question that we're dealing with tonight. And what I want to try to do here is to answer both the unconvinced questions and the convinced person's questions. The unconvinced, I hope, won't take near as long uh, as the convinced questions. But I do believe, first of all, that we've got to get it in our minds, why in the world someone's death 2,000 years ago would have anything to do with me, okay? And it comes back down, as all of the five points of Calvinism do, to this question of the nature of God. I've tried to every week say that some of these great points always have their connection to something in the nature of God. All right? Um, Look, and if there's any sort of foundational principle about God, it is that God is limited by nothing. There is no limit to God. He is, the thought itself, can hardly be contained to even say the word God in his essence, he is infinite. There is no ending to him. And that means that all of his attributes are infinite as well, whether it be his purity, whether it be his holiness, whether it be his knowledge. God is not contained by what we would call finitude or finiteness. He's infinite, infinite. He's not contained. Now look, the reason why that becomes important for Christians, if you're standing on the outside not yet convinced of Christianity, is because an offense against an infinite God creates an infinite problem for a finite creature. Let me say that again. An offense um, uh, sort of a, 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 a crime um, a, a, a violation Of a God who is infinite in his holiness, the slightest mark, the slightest rebellion, the slightest bad motive, because he's an infinite God, is an infinite offense. Because anything less than absolute purity is not absolute anymore. Does that make sense? Even if it's a tiny little mark, the tiny little mark is no longer infinitely perfect. And so when mankind sins against this infinitely perfect God, it has created an infinite problem that you and I, that I've been trying to appeal to you over the last few weeks, are in trouble over. In other words, this infinite problem has separated us from God with a situation that we cannot remedy by our own efforts, if for no other reason the fact that we are finite creatures. The slightest offense against an infinite holy, infinitely holy God Is an infinite offense that a finite creature cannot bridge the gap between unless God comes and bridges the gap himself. This is what I've been trying to appeal to you. And last week we talked about the role of God the Father in our salvation, and we talked about the idea of election and predestination as simply saying this is where God intervenes into something that you cannot do. And so from Christianity's perspective, what you have in the life and the work of Jesus of Nazareth is God himself showing up to bridge the gap between the infinite and the finite. So that his death, his taking on the punishment for our uh, offenses against God, are taken on by an infinite person in God, the Son. And because they take take on by an infinite person, the, 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 the gap is now bridged. So the reason why it's important that a man 2,000 years ago died on a cross and somehow this release of my sin doesn't make sense unless he's God. And so Jesus' claim to be God is absolutely central to Christianity. And I simply say that because it means that his death has infinite value. Because he is an infinite creature who dies for finite creatures, um, he creates a, a salvation that is of infinite value. Our sins have to be paid for. And in being paid for, they have to be completely paid for against an infinite offense. Does that make sense? Okay. I simply want to say that because I don't want to be presumptuous, either with the crowd that shows up here or with the people that you interact with every single day on campus, that you assume that people understand what it is that Jesus do. Jesus died for my sin. That doesn't cut it much anymore for your generation. You know this, don't you? For your generation, they're looking and hearing those kinds of words, and it just doesn't make sense to them but we begin in the nature of God. Okay? Um, Okay. For those, though, on the inside of Christianity, the questions, in my opinion, are a bit different. Because having asked the question about the reason for Jesus' sacrifice, right, in dealing with the infinite offense, what I then want to follow up is the question, well, then what exactly did Jesus do? And we come here to such a, a, a difficult rub, and this is where I'm just going to state it baldly, Last week, I had the audacity to suggest to you that God the Father is the one who initiates, completes, and sort of the, the author and finisher of our faith in our election. In the philosophical problems, we tried to look at and sort of look over the deep end into sort of that infinite question. Tonight, I simply want to say that God the Son is on the same page with God the Father. That's all I'm suggesting, and that when Jesus shows up on the earth, the third point of Calvinism basically is trying to establish that Jesus comes to die not for all people in the most general of sense, but for the specific people whom his father gave him to die for. Does that make sense? Therefore, the way in which the five points of Calvinism refers to it is they call it limited atonement. That's the third point of Calvinism. Remember, it's making a little acronym, TULIP. T is total depravity. U is unconditional election. L, limited atonement. Now, let's take those two words, the second one first, before we deal with the first one, because the first one's a little bit problematic. Atonement. What do we mean by atonement? Atonement is nothing more than a covering. It's 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 a way of dealing with an offense. Oftentimes, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find God demanding of His covenant people that they offer sacrifices as an atonement for their sin. In other words, once again, we have the life of a creature who has sinned against God, and the life of that sin, the the, the, um, the life of that person who's committed that sin is is um, is forfeit because of that sin and so God comes along and says there must be another life in your place and so he gave them instructions about offering lambs and bulls and birds and things like that to offer what atonement by atonement we are talking about covering for sin now of course those old testament sacrifices didn't stay where they were did they Those sacrifices, it turned out, were pointing to something else that was yet to come. That is an ultimate sacrifice, an ultimate lamb, an ultimate bull sacrifice that would come eventually in the very Son of God. In other words, all those Old Testament sacrifices were all saying, hey, there's something coming in the future that will do this in an ultimate sense. And when Jesus comes along, he offers that very thing. So here's my question back to it. What did Jesus' death do? And when we venture into this, I want to go and refer back to two sort of very old dead guys uh, who worked on this very early on during the Reformation. And they talked about this question, what did Jesus' death actually accomplish? Let's first of all deal with an old Dutch theologian, never mind his name. uh, It's not important for you to remember. This old Dutch theologian said, look, let's establish this first of all, that Jesus' death was powerful. It did something and we can see throughout the scriptures that his death actually accomplished something. Okay, Let's go back and look at some of those scripture passages real quick to see what the Bible says. Did Jesus do something to make something possible or did he actually accomplish something? Let's run through these real quick. Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, he didn't become sinful, but he became sin. Why? So he could bear the burden for our sin. Romans 5.10. For, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? When we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through his atoning death. Did you catch that? We were reconciled to that's what Jesus' death accomplished. It actually reconciled people. It didn't just make it possible. Acts 5.31. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Isn't that interesting? To give repentance to Israel. Interesting. To give repentance. <laughs> God had to give you your repentance before you exercised it. Interesting way to put that. Okay, John 10.14-18. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Isn't that interesting? I have the authority to lay it down, and I can take it up. Jesus was no victim, at least not in his own mind. He was there on a mission to do something, to actually finish something. First Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, be put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Isn't that interesting? So that Christ might bring us to God. That language is very specific. You have this image of Jesus actually taking us along to his Father. Hebrews 9:12. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Having obtained eternal redemption. He actually obtained the eternal redemption. It was not a possibility he obtained it. John six thirty-five through 40. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and will raise him up at the last day. Okay. This is what we're simply trying to pitch to you, and I'm going to say it straight up, and then we'll try to defend it for the next, for the rest, next part of our time. Um, last week we said that Jesus, that God actually exercised His authority to, to save His people. Jesus comes to die for those very same people to accomplish their salvation. The pitch that the Five Points of Calvinism are making to you is that Jesus did not die for everybody. That Jesus' death... Was able to save a hundred worlds, but it was efficient for only those people whom his father had given him. In other words, the father and the son were on the same page. They were doing they were working exactly together. That the father looked and said, "These are my elect." The son went to go get those elect. Now, <laughs> I realize it's and it's okay at this moment for you to be looking and saying, "There's no way that I just heard him right about what he just said." <laughs> Why would anyone ever sort of believe something like that particular doctrine? And we say, therefore, that the atonement of Jesus Jesus was limited to those whom his Father gave him. Now, that's not to say that Jesus' death on the cross is limited in its ability to save. Quite the opposite. What it is is it's limited for the people for whom it was intended to save. That's what we're suggesting. That's what the third point of Calvinism uh, is suggesting. Now, Let me simply say this, for those of you that sort of recoil at that thought, because for most of us we were brought up with this understanding that what Jesus did on the cross was by his death, he created, as it were, a general proposition. Hey, I've come half the way, all right? I did all the dirty work on the cross. However, there's a little bit on your shoulders here as well. And on your shoulder is the burden for you to exercise your faith, to actually repent, and to come to me. If you'll do that, this salvation that I've made possible for you will actually become something that works for you. And the reason why I wanted to read all those passages to you, and there's more than just that, is because the Bible seems to suggest that Jesus' work on the cross was stronger than that. That his work, the power of his salvation was not limited in terms of its ability to save. But it actually came out and saved his people. The way in which it was limited are the people for whom it was intended. That only those people who actually exercise repentance and faith were those for whom it was intended. And as it turns out, he gave them that as well. In other words, he ends up being the author and the finisher of our faith, as it says. Now, a couple thoughts. Please notice that for those people who don't like this third point of Calvinism, and I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of people who say, well, I'll take four, but I can't handle that third one because it seems too obvious that Jesus died for everybody. We're going to talk about that in just a second, about all the places where it seems to suggest that Jesus did. But a lot of people say, I don't like that third one because it seems like that one just doesn't seem right. And I want to say, well... But don't you want to have the Father and the Son, though, doing the same thing? Are you able in some sense to accept that God in His infinite mystery elected some to salvation, but it's too hard to believe that Jesus and His Father were on the same page? Second thing to consider is this. Is it not true that everyone limits Jesus' death in some way? You're either going to limit Jesus' death in terms of who it was intended for, which is what I'm suggesting, and the third point of Calvinism is suggesting, or you're going to limit it in terms of its ability to save you. Look, I've been phrasing this in a very particular way, because when I was in elementary and junior high, this was my great problem. Because the way in which the gospel was put in front of me was always on those terms. Jesus did something for you. He came halfway, but it's up to you to meet him halfway. I think I, was presented in, I think it was even presented to me in that explicit way. Jesus came halfway, but the rest is up to you. And to be honest with you, it always seemed like that was the catch. I'd be sitting there in the church or on the youth retreat or over my Bible or something, and I would listen to all these people talk about, oh, Jesus did this. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow as long as you believe and are sincere and walk the aisle and pray this prayer and live a life worthy and change your life and don't ever sin again. That's what I heard. You know what this is like. Haven't you ever sat down with somebody? And they're like, look, I know that as your roommate we've had some problems here before, and I just really want to say that I'm really sorry for the way I acted the other night, and I just want to apologize to you, but... I really feel like you could be a better roommate. And when it comes down to it, I feel like I've been a whole lot more gracious than you have. Let me ask you a question. When you walk away from that conversation, what did you hear? Are you going to hear that I'm sorry? Uh-uh. That thing's going to go away like that. What you got was the catch. <laughs> I'm willing to say I'm sorry as long as you're willing to eat this big pile of uh, you know, uh, garbage here. Uh, of uh... <laughs> Sorry. You get halfway into something and then you're like, wait a minute. As long as you're willing to sort of take this pill that I'm going to make you swallow, uh, you know, you were wrong too. Bear with me. Bear with me. Um, That's the way I always felt the gospel was presented to me. Less, Jesus did something, but he didn't do it all. The five points of Calvinism, when they were first explained to me, the first time, I, I revolted. My insides were like, that's crazy. But you know what? The older that I got and the more experience that I had with my own rebellion the more I started realizing, you know what, this may actually be very good news. It may very well be that Jesus did not do something very impotently. He did not stand up there and say, you know what, I've got a gift for you. But that gift can't be for you unless you come up and take it. Because every time on the youth retreat or in the church service that I came up and took it, I was that guy who answered 50 invitations when I was growing up in church. Am I the only one who relates to this? Like where the guy gets up and says, now if anyone here wants to be a Christian tonight and you're not sure about your salvation, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I, I, I can't count how many times I was like, well, you know, I better make sure. Yeah. If, if, if I died, you know, something now am I sure? No, I really wouldn't be sure. I think one of the reasons is because Jesus' salvation was hold, held out to me as contingent. You know what I mean? Contingent means? It was, um, it was if, then. If you do this, then his salvation is for you. For one of the first times it was presented to me that no, 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 Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He didn't come in to do something to say, boy, what a fine mess you've made of yourself, Les. He came in to actually do it all. To be honest with you, those who disagree with Calvinism have, in my opinion, a very difficult task because there are only a certain, there are only a few certain choices. And this is from another old Puritan by the name of John Owen. John Owen was the one who would say this. There are only a handful of choices. Either on the one hand, Jesus died for all the sins of all men. Okay, that's possibility number one. When Jesus died, he died for everybody's sins for every man. Secondly, he died for all of the sins of only some men. Or thirdly, he only died for some of the sins of all men. Look, y'all, this is one of those logical syllogisms here that may be baking your noodle for a Wednesday night after your organic quizzes here. Let's try it one more time, okay? There are only three options. Option number one, Jesus died for all the sins of all the people. Number two, he died for all the sins of some of the people. By the way, that's what I'm advocating for is option number two. Or number three, he died for only some of the sins of all the people. All right? I guess a fourth option could be some of the sins of some of the people, but nobody's arguing for that. So it's the first thing we're dealing with, okay? (laughs) Are you following my little grid I'm working through? Okay, let's take the third one first. Let's say that Jesus only died for some of the sins of all people. Well, then we have a problem, do we not? If Jesus only died for some of the sins, you don't have a perfect sacrifice and you have to go to an infinitely holy God with still sins to your stain. Oops. Okay. The second one that Jesus died for all the sins of some people is what I'm advocating. That's what I'm suggesting. And those some people are God's eternal elect. Now, most people will look and say, no, no, no less. He died for all the sins of all the people. But in order for that salvation to be meaningful, you have to believe And here's my question to that. This is John Owen's statement to that. He said, well, let me ask you a question. If a person does not believe in Jesus, is that a sin? Is someone's failure to believe in Jesus and give their life to him a sin or is it not? And, of course, the answer is, well, yes, of course it is. Well, then if Jesus died for all the sins of all the people, why did he not die for the sin of unbelief as well? Which means all you're left with is what we call universalism. If Jesus died for all the sins of all people, then everybody goes to heaven. Now, we talked about last week. Somebody asked this question last week. Was it, it Louis? Yeah. Um, we talked about last week that that's well within the realm of possibility, except for the fact that you have a lot of information in God's revealed word about the fact that there is a place for people who have rejected this message. Okay? And are culpable all of, and are themselves only responsible for having done so. We can rehash next last week's discussion in Q&A afterwards if you want to. But I simply want to establish for you that's the problem that we're dealt with. You are either going to limit Jesus' atonement in terms of its ability to save you, or you're going to limit it in terms of who it was for. Those are the only two options, is what John Owen is saying. And in my opinion, that has yet to be answered in about 350 years of church history in my opinion. You can disagree with me on that, and that's fine. Okay, now let's deal with some objections, and then we'll have some Q&A before we finish here. (laughs) And I can imagine the objections are, you know, they're deep down. Wait a minute, that's crazy. Um, Number one, first of all, people look and say, uh, all right, Les, since we're dealing with the Bible, what about all the passages in the Bible that talk about Jesus dying for the world, and the other passages that say that Jesus died for all, okay? Now, look, let me just simply say right now that, like, Calvinists are aware of these Bible verses. Like Some people be like, look at that. Um, Be honest with you. uh, We know. We've seen those verses. It's not sort of a a shock to us. Let me simply say how we deal with this. Oftentimes, in the New Testament especially, where the Bible says that Jesus died for the world. Let's take, for instance, the most popular Bible verse in the the Bible, which is what? John 3.16, For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. See there, less it says world. If it says world, it must mean everybody who ever lived. Does it necessarily mean that? The word world there is the Greek word kosmos. And oftentimes, the word world is not used to mean every single individual in the world, but a sinful principle of the world that's talked about sin kind of in a, uh, in a very generalized sense. In other words, the point of what John is saying there in John chapter 3 is to say God loves something as sinful as the world. God moved in to a group of people that were actually actively rejecting him. The world does not necessarily have to mean every single individual ever lived. To which people look and say, yeah, but what about the that say that Jesus died for all? Surely that has to mean that he died for everybody, doesn't it? Here's the question, though. Does all have to mean that? In the passages where people typically talk about the all passages, and they're like Romans 5.18, like we read, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.22, 2 Corinthians 5.14, Timothy 2, Titus chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, where it looks and says, for all, uh, where Jesus' death was for all. In most of those cases, y'all, the word all is simply saying, all without distinction, not all without exception. Now, what's the difference? Well, let me give an example. Let's say someone comes up to to me and uh, says, um, let's say you're having a conversation. Let's do it that way. And says, you know, that Les Newsome, that guy's crazy. He's weird. Uh, Les hates Asian people. picking on Harry tonight. It's it's too much fun here. Um, Les hates Asian people. He's a racist. Okay? What if so? I looked and said, no, he doesn't. Les loves all people at Ole Miss. Now, in context... What did that person mean by saying that my love was for all people at Old Miss? It does not mean all, every single individual, which may or may not be the case. What it means is all without paying attention to their race. Does that make sense? Look, in first century Christianity, there was a huge racial divide. You know this, don't you? Racism was a huge issue in the New Testament. And the racial issue was between ethnically Jewish people and those that were not, that the Jewish people called Gentiles. We've been doing racism for a long time, okay? Trust us. And so the Bible over and over again has to deal with this racism there by saying, look, Jesus did not just come to die for Jewish people. This is not just a message for you religious people. It's also for those outside. Jesus died for all. If you go back and look at all those places where the word all is used, the Calvinist looks and believes that it's being used as um, all without distinction, not all without exception. Um, Last question here. There are some people look and say, and we got this question last week. Who asked this about can we say that God loves uh, uh, everybody? Can I say that God loves everybody? Look, y'all. What's interesting is the Calvinist believes that there are four different ways the Bible talks about God's love. There is the love of God for the rest of the members of the Trinity, right? God loves the Son. God loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son and the Father. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. There's an intertrinitarian love of God. That's number one. Number two, there's love that God has for the incarnate Christ. God loves His Son. The Father loves the Son above all else. All those, there's beautiful love there. Thirdly, God has a general love for the world. This is what I was trying to say last week that there's a sense in which he loves his creation, like Psalm 145. He, he uh, brings kindness to them. He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But the Calvinist says that there's a fourth particular kind of love that God specifically has for his own people. It's a special love. It's a marital love. It's a saving love. It's a gracious love. And so therefore his determination is to save those people. So in some ways, the Calvinist does not limit God's love. The person who disagrees with the Calvinist limits it because he says that that fourth love does not exist, right? That that love is only in the most general of senses based upon whether or not someone responds to them. Okay, I'm done and we're ready for questions, but can I simply say this? I know that the philosophical questions from last week will still hang in the air for you, and that's okay. We can ask those again. But I simply want you to entertain for just a moment What if, what if the spiritual movements that have been happening in me up until this time, and when I talk about spiritual movements, I'm talking about all kinds of things. How about parents who raised you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? How about the youth retreat that you got invited on that you walked away from saying, I got to think about that. How about that church service where that sermon, while it was being preached, you sat there and thought to yourself, man, I got to think about this. How about the fact that you thought to yourself, "You know what? I don't want to get up and go to a Bible study on Wednesday night in the middle of the summer, but I'm going to go do it anyway because I know that I need to hear from God's word." What if those spiritual motions are God's working in you? And God's working contrary to what you would do to what you would do if he wasn't working in you, which is to run away? Maybe the fact that you even showed up tonight to come for a Bible study is God working to let you know that Jesus did not offer you an impotent salvation, lacking in the power to save, yes, even you, no matter where you find yourself this week. Look, I don't know about you, but the longer that I live, the more overwhelmed I am with the junk that I realize it's in my own heart towards God. And I can't work out the philosophical questions about how God can still hold people responsible for something that they were not not able to control in their being born in a certain way. But I will say this, I am infinitely encouraged by the thought that when I see the machinery of salvation moving in my own life, that means that God has not forgotten me. It absolutely has to mean that. And I can respond to that, and I can dive into it, and I can race after it with a reckless abandon. Because I know that he's at work and not me. The gun is, the sword of Damocles is not hanging over my head. It hung over Jesus' head. And it fell, by the way. And he died for it. And having done so has won for me something that's not a contingent salvation, but an absolute salvation that actually brings me to God and it'll bring us safe home, which we'll talk about next week. Next week, we'll talk about assurance. Okay, we will stop there.